I'm happy to pick up this morning once again in what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you don't read it in your Bible anywhere. Now, now here's the Sermon on the Mount, but we do read here in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus um, went up on a mountainside and sat down. He opened his mouth, his disciples gathered around them, and he began to teach them. And so that's how this section of scripture became known as the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've been doing each week, just to kind of catch everybody up, or maybe you're here today for the first time and you're just walking in and not quite sure what we're doing, and maybe wondering why we are reading and and talking about uh, verses 27 through 30 of chapter 5, it's because we've been making our way all the way through. And this is where we are. We'll go all the way through uh, the Sermon on the Mount ends at the end of the seventh chapter. So this sermon, though, just for clarification, it's not really instruction on how to get into the kingdom. Remember, Jesus sat down with his disciples and he taught them. So he's first of all teaching those who are already in the kingdom because they've embraced him as a Messiah. But the context makes it clear that the the uh, the crowd expands and grows. So he begins to direct the message to a more general population, but the general population would be primarily Israelites, people who are the people of Israel. But again, it's not instruction on how to get into the kingdom. We know that we come into the kingdom by the work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and us putting our faith and trust in him as our Lord and Savior. So what the Sermon on the Mount is then, and what Jesus is saying here, is that now that I'm here, God's new world is coming into being, and these are the habits of heart and the ways of living which anticipate the new world here and now. So that Jesus is giving us a picture of what life in his kingdom looks like. Basically, that is what he's doing here. And so these are, um, or these attitudes and behaviors that are described are not, as we've said, the things that you have to do to earn your way into God's favor, nor are they merely the rules of conduct Now that you become a Christian, they are themselves signs of life, the life of the kingdom, the life which Jesus came to bring. And this is something that, as you know, we've been talking about, the importance of living in the way of Jesus, living like Jesus taught us to live by both uh, verbally taught us to live this way, but also exemplified how we are to live. And, And... how we live as the people of God is to be an indicator to the world that the kingdom of God has already arrived on some level. And it's also to be uh, an invitation to people when they see the beautiful life of the kingdom to want to be part of that as well. And so each week, I think uh, each of us have quoted that great little paragraph from Jochem Jeremiah. So let me just read it one more time. 
because I think it, it sums everything up quite well. What Jesus teaches in the sayings collected in the Sermon on the Mount is not a complete regulation of the life of the disciples, and it is not intended to be. Rather, what is taught here are symptoms, signs, examples of what it means when the kingdom of God breaks into the world which is still under sin, death, and the devil. You yourselves should be signs of the coming kingdom of God, signs that something has already happened. So this is the church as, and, and I've used this quite, a, quite often, uh, the Eugene Peterson uh, quote that the church is a colony of heaven in a country of death. That's what we are to be, a colony of heaven. You know, a colony was a place that was a miniature of um, the, the empire itself. So throughout the ancient world at the time that the New Testament was written, you had a number of places that were Roman colonies. Philippi was a Roman colony, for example. Corinth was a Roman colony. And so the idea was that when you were in Philippi or in Corinth, you kind of just felt like you were in Rome. It so reflected the, the capital as a colony. And the church is the colony of heaven in the country of death. The church is to be this place that it's like, wow, it's kind of like we're in heaven. <laughs> it's kind of like we're in uh, the presence of God. Uh, sadly, we know that so often we failed in that regard, but that is the intention. And so just to catch us up to where we read today, verse 27, uh, we have, of course, looked at what are called the Beatitudes. That's where we began. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, the pure in heart, and so forth. From there, we also looked at what some have called the similitudes or the likenesses. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then in verses 17 and 18, Jesus, and it's important to remember this as well. Jesus speaks to his people, the Israelites, so this sermon is very much directed toward um, the people of God, the Israelites at the time. And so Jesus speaks to the Israelites whose entire lives revolved in some way or another around the law and the prophets and clarifies his position on the law and the prophets. People would have been wondering, well, what, what this Jesus and this teaching, is this to replace the law and the prophets? Uh, some of those who were antagonistic to Jesus would have suggested that he was contradicting the law and the prophets. So Jesus clarifies there, as you remember, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then having stated that he had come to fulfill the law and the prophets, Jesus then set out, and this is where we are today, uh, he set out to correct the misinterpretation of the law that the religious leaders of his day had imposed upon the people. And so we saw that in uh, earlier when he said uh, in um, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to the judgment, but I tell you. So Jesus is correcting the, um, the misinterpretation that had become popular through the teaching of the rabbis, and he's going to do that here with 
the next topic that we're going to look at as well. But, but in this, there are two things that he's, Jesus is seeking to do. And we're gonna, this is what we'll spend our time looking at. Number one, he is showing that God's law was intended to govern not just the outward actions and behaviors, but first and foremost, the thoughts, intents, and motives of the heart. So this is where the religious leaders of the day, they completely missed that. For them, it was just simply, you shall not murder. I've not murdered anybody. I'm righteous. I'm fine. I'm good. But as we've already seen, looking at that, Jesus says, oh, no, actually, murder is not just the physical act. It's preceded by things that go on in the heart. And if you're guilty of those things in your heart, then you are before God guilty of murder itself. And so he basically does the same thing with this next topic here, which is adultery. But the second thing that he does, he is bringing God's standard of righteous and just behavior to bear upon his kingdom disciples. And so those are the two things that we're going to look at. He's showing that God's law was intended to govern um, the thoughts, intents, and motives of the heart. So the religious leaders of the day, and not, not all of them, obviously, because we, we read about people like uh, Nicodemus, we read about um, Joseph of Arimathea, we even read later about Saul, who becomes Paul the Apostle. There were those who were sincere, but many of the religious leaders of the day were, were basically hypocrites, and Jesus had no problem pointing that out. He oftentimes said to them, just right up front, you hypocrites. Now, they were hypocrites because they had taken and just, again, made everything external. And so it was all about what you did externally and they never really considered the heart before God. And so what we're talking about here is external religion, taking rules, taking commandments, taking ordinances and regulations, and just saying, okay, yeah, I, I did that. Yeah, I keep those things. But never considering that these things actually are intended not just to monitor your behavior, but to monitor your attitude. So you might very well have outwardly done the right things, but inwardly you have broken these commandments over and over again. And what external religion equals is moralism. And, and I'll tell you, today we're, we're living in a time when I think even within the church, there has been a moralism that has crept in and in many ways replaced the essence of the New Testament message of the gospel. We'll talk about that more in a second. But many of the Pharisees, as I said, were moralist. And so this is what we would see. They were smug, they were self-righteous, 
They certainly did not see themselves as sinners in need of a savior. I mean, the biggest offense of Jesus was that he told them they needed to be saved. That was intolerable. They couldn't believe that Jesus would insinuate that there was anything the matter with them. They were so convinced of their own goodness and righteousness. After all, they could boast they had not committed adultery. They had not gone through the physical act of adultery. Far from it, they were the ones who would hunt down the adulterers and seek to bring them to justice. And we can read a story where that happens in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. So as I said, there are moralists in the church today, just as there were moralists at the time of Jesus. Those who will boast of having never committed adultery, but are secretly addicted to pornography or constantly fantasizing about what it would be like to take so-and-so to bed. Uh, They likewise have never raised their hand against someone to murder them, but they've slain them a thousand times over in their minds and engaged in character assassination with their lips. So this is not just, my point is simply, this is not just a problem that you found 2,000 years ago among the religious leaders. This is a, a perpetual occurrence in the religious world where many never go beyond the external. They, like the religious leaders of Jesus' time, fail to realize that it's not what goes into a person that defiles them. Again, the external things, what they eat or drink, but what is inside, that is the problem. And then Jesus said this, It's recorded in um, the other Gospels, but in the 15th chapter, in another context, he says, For from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are the things that defile a person. So when Jesus says here, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, many would say, yep, we heard it and... We're proud to say that we've never committed adultery. They'd never committed adultery. They had never gone to the point of engaging in the physical act of adultery. But Jesus said, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is piercing right through that external facade of righteousness, and he's dealing right with the heart issues. And if, if you think for a minute about that story in, that's recorded for us in John chapter 8, where they take this woman, and they bring her before Jesus, and they throw her at the feet of Jesus, and they say, we, this woman committed adultery, we caught her in the very act. Now, the question has always been, where's the fella? (laughs) He caught her in the very act, where's the man? 
But this is what they said. And Moses in the law says to Stoner, what do you say? And if you know the story, you know that Jesus didn't really respond initially to them. Instead, he stooped down and he began to write in the dirt. Nobody really knows what, exactly what he wrote. But what Jesus finally said to them was this. He said, okay, Moses in the law command to Stoner, all right. The one among you that is without sin, let him throw the first stone. So Jesus put, I mean, you know, he, he really acts out, in a sense, what he's saying here in that he's revealing that even though they had never committed adultery, that they were guilty in their hearts. Now, let me say this. Not everyone is a self-deceived moralist. Some were. But others simply failed to realize the internal application of God's law. It wasn't that they were necessarily just hypocrites and they, they didn't even want to go there or think that that could be a possibility. They, they just simply didn't realize it. They didn't realize that the intention in the command was something beyond just external adherence to it. Paul the Apostle was in that place before his conversion. And Paul talks about the fact that before his own conversion, how he, he said regarding the law, he was blameless. Wow, how could you be blameless regarding the law? Well, Paul thought that the law was really pretty much just, you know, make sure you don't do these things, and he had really worked hard to not do them. But then he writes this in Romans chapter 7, verse 9. He says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And what Paul is describing here is the moment in time when the reality of the internal breadth of the, of the commandment struck him. So he says, I was alive once without the law. Paul never was without the law. He was born under the law. He was born into the nation of Israel, and therefore he was always under the law. But when he says, I was alive once without the law, means he didn't understand the full extent of the law. So he was fine. If you would have asked Paul before, uh, this moment of understanding came to him about the commands, he would have said, of course, I've kept them all. But when the commandment came, in other words, when he understood the depth and the breadth of the commandment, that it wasn't merely external, but that it was meant to govern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And the, the very passage that Paul says was the, was the determining factor for him was the passage, the final commandment, you shall not covet. And the religious leaders should have known that anyway. The, it, the seventh commandment said you shall not commit adultery. But the tenth commandment said you shall not desire your neighbor's wife. So the 10th commandment even clarified that it was not just behavior, it was attitude that was also included. 
So this is what Paul is describing here. So he says, when the commandment came, in other words, when I understood the, the breadth and the depth of the commandment, sin revived and I died. All of a sudden, Paul says, I realize, oh, wait, I am a sinner. And he says, I died, meaning that sin slew him. So what Jesus is teaching here, just to sum it up, is that no one has kept the law and can therefore trust in their own righteousness for acceptance with God. That is part of what Jesus is doing here in this sermon. And um, remember when uh, a few weeks ago, I think it was when uh, Char was talking about uh, Jesus said to them, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom. This is what he's talking about. The, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was that external righteousness. But Jesus said, your righteousness has to go beyond that. And it has to be a righteousness that is actually beyond your, your grasp. So Jesus is saying, you might never have committed the outward act of adultery or murder, but you have broken the command in your heart we all have done that. He's forcing us to look beyond ourselves to the grace of God for salvation. So that's the first thing. Now, secondly, let's look at the second point. Jesus here is not removing the command. And this is for this is, this is where the application goes beyond the immediate listener, the Israelite, those who were already connected with the law. This is where the application goes to God's kingdom people. Jesus does not lower the standard for his kingdom people. He elevates it. So you see, Jesus brings clarity. He says, you have heard that it was said. This is what you've been thinking all, all along. But no, that, that's not the extent of it. This is what it actually means. And so he's <clears throat> raising the standard. As his people, we are not only going to keep ourselves from adultery, we are going to have our hearts renewed so that we do not look at one another lustfully, wondering how you can please me, but we look at each other purely wondering how we can honor one another and glorify God in our relationships. You see, this is what the life in the kingdom is supposed to look like. And this is why it's such a, a great, great travesty and a contradiction of the life of the kingdom when we find adultery in our midst. And sometimes, of course, we find adultery... Um, even among those who lead within the church. But when that's the case, it's a complete repudiation of what Jesus is actually teaching and what life in the kingdom is ultimately all about. Now, adultery, just for clarification, adultery is, here's a definition, a voluntary sexual encounter between a married man and someone other than his wife or between a married woman and someone other than her husband. A voluntary sexual encounter. 
Now, there are still places today where adultery is illegal. But the definition of adultery, the legal definition of adultery, is sexual intercourse. But I think the biblical definition would be sexual encounter. See, because some people have said, well, well, you know, we actually never had intercourse. So I'm really not guilty of adultery. Well, whose, whose interpretation of the law are you looking at? You might be looking at the state's interpretation there and saying, I'm fine. But when you look at God's understanding of what adultery is, any sexual encounter with a person that you are not married to. Now, again, just for clarification, uh, adultery is very specific. It's dealing with unfaithfulness to the marital covenant. But there's also the term, and we read it earlier in the, the quote from the 15th chapter of Matthew, and the two are side by side, adultery, sexual immorality. So sexual immorality is oftentimes, sometimes, it, sexual immorality, the, the word that's translated sexual immorality is porneia, is the Greek word, but it's, it's a very broad word and it, it sort of just includes everything that is outside of what God permits. So adultery would be included in sexual immorality, but the distinct feature of adultery is that it is uh, married people who are um, violating the, the covenant, where sexual immorality does not necessarily apply to married people. Sometimes the word porneia, in the older translations, mostly it's translated fornication, fornication which would then be defined as pre, what we might say premarital sex. So just a clarification on that. Now, here's an interesting thing, though. Although adultery is often glorified in films and novels in such a way as to make it seem that everyone is either having an affair or going to have an affair, in the statistics actually tell a different story, amazingly, even presently. Now, if you watch TV or whatever you watch, network TV or Netflix or Prime or, you know, whatever. If you, if you go to the cinema, you're, you're going to get the feeling so often that everybody does adultery. It's just what everybody does. But the statistics are different. In the U.S., this, this kind of fascinated me, really. In the U.S., 60 to 70% of married couples remain faithful to each other throughout their lifetime. So, four out of 10, three out of 10. I think that's, that's interesting, considered, considering what is so often uh, presented to us. Adultery, universally, the betrayal of adultery is one of the most emotionally painful experiences anyone can go through. And even 
where there's you know the the either blatant or subtle promotion of having an affair, whether it be through film or novels or whatever the case, um, you know, there's not a single person that is the victim of adultery that doesn't experience the pain of that betrayal. So even though it's so often presented as something, and sometimes you can read articles where the impression is being given like, hey, this is the next exciting thing for your life. Things have become bored, or, you, or you've become bored in your marital relationship. Have an affair. That's, that's the way to spice everything up. The people who are writing that know that it isn't true. Because adultery only always results in pain. And that pain is often extended beyond the victim to others, especially children, family, and even friends. Adultery has ruined friendships outside the marriage. This is the, the impact. So this is no doubt one of the reasons Jesus speaks such stern words of warning to those considering or engaging in adultery. Now look what Jesus then says, verse 29. He says, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying here? Now, let's just understand right up front, Jesus is using exaggerated speech here, intentionally. Jesus is speaking with hyperbole, and when you speak with hyperbole, it's to emphasize. It's an exaggerated statement. It's like when we say, gosh, I'm starving to death, and we just ate three hours ago. So we know <laughs> we're not really starving to death, but we, we are hungry and we want to express that. So Jesus often uses hyperbole. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. Jesus is not saying that anyone should ever literally do that. Now, a few Christians whose zeal greatly exceeded their wisdom have taken Jesus literally here and mutilated themselves. This has happened. One of the best known examples, perhaps, is the third century scholar, Origen of Alexandria. This man, Origen, he was just, he was so brilliant. He was, a, he was truly a scholar. Uh, he was heretical in some areas as well, but he was indeed a, a brilliant person. But he went to extremes of asceticism. Asceticism is the practice of denying yourself uh, any physical pleasure. So Origen went to extremes of asceticism. He renounced possessions, food. He renounced sleep. And in an over-literal interpretation of this passage, he made himself a eunuch. So his zeal exceeded his wisdom. Jesus 
never intended that we actually literally physically do this. What was, is Jesus saying to us about dealing with sin? Well, remember this. Of course, Jesus knows better than anyone that gouging out an eye or cutting off a hand will not change a sinful heart. You know, this was the problem that began to surface in the, not only began to surface, but I think still does exist in some cases in the ancient monasteries. In, in the monastery, the idea was that you would get yourself so far away from worldly types of things and temptation that you would no longer battle or struggle with these things. But what many in the monasteries began to discover is that it didn't matter how far out in the desert they were. It didn't matter how locked away from the world they had placed themselves. They still struggled with all of the desire internally. And of course, Jesus knows that. That's, that's what he's saying in the context here. He's talking about that very thing. His point is to show that sin is so serious that no one can afford to let it go unchecked. So Jesus is using this really kind of jarring language to get people to wake up to the reality of how destructive sin is. Because isn't it true that we tend to just oftentimes think that sin is it's really not that bad. I mean, yes, of course, I know that I shouldn't do this, but, but it, it, it's not that big of a deal. Well, Jesus thinks differently. And he wants us to understand, really, the severity of sin. So his point is to show that sin is so serious that no one can afford to let it go unchecked. The answer is not gouging out your eye or cutting off your hand. The answer is heart renewal through a genuine commitment to following Jesus and living the way he's taught and shown us to live. That's the bigger picture of what the Bible teaches about all of this. And that's what Jesus is wanting to bring them to at this point. Showing them that no one is... Um, no one is, is righteous. No one has kept, actually, what God intended with the commandments. And therefore, no one can save themselves. We need salvation from outside. And that, of course, is what Jesus came to bring. Now, John Stott, the well-known British uh, theologian who we quote quite often. Um, John Stott, I think on a practical note, he had something good to say because there is that place we have to recognize. There is that place where we cease our own efforts. We receive the grace of God. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And it's through that that we are able to walk in the spirit and have the victory. But sometimes we mistakenly think that that excludes effort on our part, <coughs> that it all just is automatically going to happen. 
But what we find is that, no, there, there still is a war. And maybe you remember in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he talks about that reality that we as God's people, although we are people of the Spirit, although we are born of the Spirit, although we are indwelt by the Spirit, we still have that human nature that has fallen to contend with. And so Stott here, I think, gives some good practical advice when it comes to our part in dealing with sin. And so he said this, he said, if your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through the things you see, then don't look. The answer is not gouge out your eye. The answer is for you as a believer, don't look. Or if it's your hand, the things you do, that are causing you to sin, don't do it. Or, because in another context, Jesus adds your feet to this, uh, or if it's your feet, the places you go, don't go. And then he says this, behave as if you had actually cut off your hands and feet and were now crippled so you can no longer do the things that you do or go the places you go. Then, Stott says this, finally. He says, this is what it means to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, of course, the, this sermon was given in the ministry of Jesus and foundational truths are laid out in this sermon. But so much of what is here is further developed and elaborated on as we go into the writings of the apostles. And so Paul would say to the Colossians, for example, that we are to mortify or to put to death. He would say this to the Romans as well. We are to put to death the deeds of the body. So there is that active uh, element in our sanctification where we are taking the measures by the grace of God to stop looking, stop touching, stop going to the places where we have these temptations and these vulnerabilities. God gives us the strength to do that. In closing, it's interesting that Jesus uses adultery as a basis for talking very dramatically about sin. And I think he did that because adultery in so many ways illustrates the true destructive nature of sin. All around us, we see wreckage and brokenness caused by adultery. And I think one of the big problems that we often have is that we just fail to pause and think for a moment. Think of the people who have literally wrecked their lives and the lives of so many people around them because of an adulterous affair. 
And, I, I, and I, I've often wondered, like, you know, what if you would have just thought about that for just a few minutes before you went headlong into it? What if you could have just stopped and thought about where this is going to end up? You know, one of the most notorious adulterous relationships in all of history is recorded for us in the Bible. Remember the story of King David and Bathsheba. That is a story of adultery. David took a married woman to himself and had a sexual relationship with her. And David, this man who was God's man, this man who was blessed extraordinarily by God, at the pinnacle of his greatness, he foolishly indulges himself and he brings disaster on the rest of his life and his family. Wow. So, I think Jesus, again, is using adultery here to show the severity of sin because the consequences are so real. And he wants us to understand that sin is not forbidden because God doesn't want you to enjoy your life. Sin is forbidden because God doesn't want you to destroy your life. And he knows that that's what sin will do. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. Jesus is able, even in a case of adultery, to forgive, to heal, and restore. He's in the business of doing that, going back once again to that woman. When those men who wanted so desperately to put her to death for her sin, when they finally all had dropped their stones and walked away because they were all convicted in their own conscience. Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So even if we've sinned, even if we have committed adultery, God is able to forgive. He's able to heal. He's able to restore. If you have been the victim of adultery, God's grace is there for you as well to bring healing, to bring hope, 